Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 200. We'll continue in the book of Job with a brief summary of chapters 4 through 7 and follow with some thoughts about lingering trauma of an almost game over. And so with the frame story out of the way and the opening salvo of the poetic debate about evil in a good world delivered by Eov, chapter 4 begins with the reply of Eov's friends who came from far and wide to console him in his wretchedness. Eliphaz the Tamanite, I guess, like all friends, wavers between two powerful urges in that moment. The urge to stand by his friend in silence and the urge to speak his truth. Eliphaz sat in silence for seven days. He, like Bildad the Shuhite and so far the Naamatite, knew what was coming, the torrent of words. And they got a small sample in chapter 3. And their world, the neat orderly universe where the wicked are punished and the righteous thrive, was effectively turned upside down. Eliphaz is trying to process this new normal, and at the same time, he knows his friend. So he begins by acknowledging that What's about to come might not be accepted. Quote, if speech were tried against you, could you stand it? And then Eliphaz begins a lengthy consideration of what's happened to Eov and how it squares with what he knows about the universe. In other words, he's all about denial. Quote, recall, pray, what innocent man has died and where were the upright demolished? Later, he wonders aloud, quote, can a mortal be cleared before God? Can a man be made pure by his maker? This certainty about how humans are filled with flaws is a certainty he acquired from his spirit that visited him while he slept, one that pits against Eov's certainty about his blamelessness. And in chapter 5, Eliphaz breaks it down for Eov with some practical advice. Quote, Call out, pray, will any answer you? And to whom of the angels will you turn? For anger kills a fool, and the simple envy slays. Eliphaz assures Eov that God will answer. It's what he would do if he was in Eov's predicament. And furthermore, quote, Why, happy the man whom God corrects, Shaddai's reproof do not spurn. Consider yourself lucky, quote, For he causes pain and binds the wound. He deals blows, but his hands will heal. In six straits he will save you, and in seven harm will not touch you. Eov delivers his response to Eliphaz in chapters 6 and 7, beginning with an up-close and personal introduction to his suffering. Quote, Could my anguish but be weighed, and my disaster on the scales be borne, they would be heavier now than the sand of the sea. Thus my words are choked back, for Shaddai's arrows are in me, their venom my spirit drinks. If Eov's physical and emotional pain are not enough, now he has to contend with the feelings of abandonment and betrayal from his friends. Quote, the blighted man's friend owes him kindness, though the fear of Shaddai he forsake. My brothers betrayed like a wadi, like the channel of brooks that run dry. They are dark from the ice, snow heaped on them. When they warm, they are gone. In the heat, they melt from their place. And what does Eov ask from his friends? Quote, Did I say, give for me, and with your wealth pay a ransom for me, and free me from the hands of the foe, from the oppressor's hands redeem me? What he wants is to be heard, to have his words considered and his claims taken seriously without prejudice. Chapter 7 continues with Eov's response to Eliphaz, but he is addressing a bigger and loftier audience. 
reminding everyone how fleeting human life is and filled with tribulation. Quote, does not man have fixed service on earth and like a hired worker his days? Like a slave he pants for shade, like a hired worker he waits for his pay. But it's not enough that Eov's life is worth nothing. Quote, my days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle. They snap off without any hope. Eov is also convinced that his life is forfeit in the hands of pursuers and persecutors. Quote, am I Yam or am I the sea beast that you should put a watch upon me when I thought my couch would console me that my bed would bear my lament? You panicked me in dreams and in visions you struck me with terror. Recall that God subdued Yam and the sea beast during the early movements of the symphony of creation, quelling those forces of chaos to create the world. Was Eov a similar danger to the universal order? Eov wonders aloud about the offense he supposedly perpetrated and how serious it was that it would require such a disproportionate response, and most importantly, quote, And why do you not pardon my crime and let my sin pass away? For soon I shall lie in the dust. You will seek me, and I shall be gone. I know that marking the turning of the odometer to a nice round number is a completely arbitrary moment to celebrate, but this is Tanakhcast 200th episode. I've been at this since April of 2013 and hope to keep going for another 22 months until Tanakhcast wraps its run with episode 247. Mark your calendars and buckle up. Reading the book of Job evokes Shoah thoughts, and this section of Job evokes it almost with each line of poetic dialogue. Eliphaz the Tamanite would not have liked the 20th century, and one wonders if he would have turned to the survivors who emerged from a ruined Europe and said something like, well, you know, all of this happened to you for a reason. You just need to think more deeply and figure out what that reason is, because there would be no other way for him to process the enormity of the Shoah and the theological challenge it poses to his fundamental understanding that if a person sins, punishment awaits. And if a person is punished, it's because they sinned. And you know, it's, it's clear right off the bat that what we're dealing with here is a logical fallacy, right? I went through a list of uh, common logical fallacies in episode 95, like the ad hominem attack, where you attack the person instead of their argument because you have nothing else to say, or guilt by association, where you connect an opponent to a demonized group of people or a bad person in order to discredit their argument. In Eliphaz's case here in chapter 4, he's fallen prey to the logical fallacy known as post hoc ergo propter hoc, which literally means, after this, therefore, because of this. It's also referred to as the post hoc fallacy. And it's best explained by this example. I drank bottled water, and now I am sick. So the water must have made me sick. Or in Eliphaz's terms, all sinners are punished. So someone who is punished must have sinned. Now we might tisk-tisk Eliphaz's naivete and chide him for such an artless view of how the world works, but had he found himself teleported into the middle of the fourth decade of the 20th century, he would not have been alone 
in making this claim. While many looked up to the heavens and asked where was God during the Shoah, Eliphaz would have joined the ranks of the Satmer Hasidim, whose spiritual leader, Harav Yoel Teitelbaum, looked here on earth for the reason, and he found it. He pointed to the hubris of the Zionist movement and their efforts to settle the land of Israel, which was in clear violation of the three oaths set out in the Tractate Ketubot, folio page 111a of the Babylonian Talmud. I think a little background here might be in order. And for this, we need to go back to the first century BCE, specifically the last generation of the Hasmonean monarchy in the land of Israel. Bear with me for a moment. The heroes of the Hanukkah story, the Maccabees, founded a line of kings that would rule in the land of Israel for a little over a century. These heroes, I don't think you could see the air quotes, who first fought the Seleucid Greeks for religious freedom and independence, would later forcibly convert a subject people to Judaism, and after two brothers struggled to seize the throne for themselves, the weaker seeking Roman aid, would introduce the Romans into the land of Israel. The Romans under Pompey decided that Judea would make a nice addition to the Roman Empire, and with that, Jewish independence in the land of Israel would end for about 2,000 years. But not before the Jews would make three attempts to end Roman occupation. In 66 CE, extremist rebels provoked Rome into conflict, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 CE. When that great revolt ended in 73 CE, tens of thousands had been killed and thousands more were sold into slavery. Dozens of cities, towns, and villages were reduced to ruins. Illness and hunger followed. And yet, within a generation, Jewish life revived in Judea. In 115 CE, while Rome's armies were tied up in a frontier war with the Parthians in the east, Jewish diaspora communities in Cyrenaica, Cyprus, and Egypt organized attacks against the local poorly manned Roman garrisons. This attempt at a coordinated uprising was met with brutality and extreme force. The forces of Lucius Quietus left so many areas across the Mediterranean depopulated that Romans were moved in to prevent settlements from reverting to wilderness. The final attempt to throw off Roman rule took place 60 years after the first and established an independent state under the rule of their general Bar Kokhba. The state lasted three years, and during this short period, many Jews, including one of the most prominent sages of the time, Rabbi Akiva, understood this turn of events as the beginning of the long-hoped-for messianic age. Rabbi Akiva regarded Bar Kokhba as the Messiah. Now, the Romans couldn't allow this to stand, and they brought in troops all the way from Britain to bring Bar Kokhba to heel. They adopted a scorched-earth policy which reduced Judea to a wasteland. According to Roman historian Cassius Dio, 580,000 Jews were killed in overall war operations across the country, and some 50 fortified towns and 985 villages were razed to the ground, while the number of those who perished by famine, disease, and fire was just past finding out. The victory finally achieved came at such a great cost that when the emperor Hadrian reported to the Roman Senate, he omitted the customary greeting, if you and your children are healthy, it is well, I and the legions are healthy. Hadrian further resolved to stamp the Jews and Judaism out of existence. He sold all Jewish prisoners into slavery, forbade the teaching of Torah, 
renamed the province Syria-Palestina and changed Jerusalem's name to Aelia Capitolina. Synagogues were replaced with Roman temples. He wouldn't allow Jews to even look at the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem. Many prominent rabbis violated these edicts and martyred themselves in the process, including Rabbi Akiva. With the failure of the Great Revolt, Jewish culture took a serious blow. The temple was destroyed. This was a big deal. The War of the Diasporas didn't threaten Jewish life in Judea that much, but the fallout from the Bar Kokhba revolt was almost fatal. It could have been game over for Judaism. When Hadrian died, his edicts died with him, but the damage was done and the lessons were learned and they were internalized and repeated and reinforced over generations. And they finally found expression in the pages of the Babylonian Talmud with the formulation of the three oaths. These oaths were based on an interpretation of a series of verses in the Song of Songs and came up in the context of a discussion about whether it was wise to relocate from Babylonia to the land of Israel. The rabbis of the Talmud, or Amoraim, determined the following. Rabbi Yehuda was a second-generation Amora. He lived in the second half of the third century CE. He declared that Jews cannot perform an act of redemption until God says so. This is oath number one. Rabbi Zera, a third-generation Amora living in the early 4th century CE, declared that Jews cannot move to Israel as a wall, but can as individuals. Oath number two. Rabbi Yosei Bar Hanina, or Rabbi Yosei Bar Rabbi Hanina, also a second-generation Amora, declared that Jews should not rebel against the rule of the nations of the world. God also urged the nations of the world not to oppress the Jews too much, but, you know, things sometimes get out of hand. This is oath number three. Incidentally, Rabbi Levi, a third-generation Amora, pointed out that there are actually six oaths. Number four, those who know when the end of days or the Mashiach is coming should keep it secret. Number five, those who know it is distant should not say it is distant. Doing this will distance it even more. And number six, do not reveal the secrets of the Jews to the nations. So to recap, why must we keep these oaths? Because some combination of all six events described above nearly led to the annihilation of Judaism. So back to Harav Yoel Teitelbaum. He argued that because the Zionists performed an act of redemption without God's permission, sought to bring Jews to Israel as a wall, and rebelled against the rule of the nations, that is, the British, this brought down God's wrath on the Jewish people. Except that Harav Teitelbaum and his wife lived long enough to make this theological argument because they were smuggled out of Hungary by Rudolf Kastner, acting on behalf of the Zionist Va'adat Ezra or Aid and Rescue Committee. Harav Teitelbaum was spirited away to Switzerland and eventually Palestine, where he eventually moved to the United States, where he re-established the Satmar community in the Williamsburg neighborhood in Brooklyn. Now, I can't quantify how much Harav Teitelbaum suffered during the Shoah, even though he lost daughters and sons-in-law. But he survived thanks to the efforts of the very people he decried before, during, and after the war. Who knows what lingering trauma he carried around. And I can't quantify how much Eliphaz suffered sitting in silence for a week alongside his friend who lost everything. But being suffering adjacent, in my mind, isn't the same as suffering itself. And those who watch it happen to others 
find themselves in a unique position where they can cling somehow to the consolation of this post-hoc fallacy, because if all sinners are punished, and someone who is punished must have sinned, the one who sinned can also repent and be forgiven. There is hope after all. Except the sufferer knows differently. The logical fallacy is not logic at all, but fallacy. And the one who is punished might just suffer for no apparent reason. An argument that defies logic and undermines a worldview that some cling to as if their lives depended on it. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 201, when we continue in the Book of Job with chapters 8 through 11. 